Welcome to another episode of the Pastor's Call Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Webb. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to thank the sponsor for this show. It's Blue Water Free Methodist Church, where I have the pleasure of serving. We're an intentional community reflecting Jesus to our world. Well, today I'm so excited to have joining me as a guest. Uh, he is a founder, director of an organization called Renew a Nation that focuses on, on biblical worldview and instilling that, particularly surrounding Christian education and, and what that means for our future. But I want to welcome Jeff Keaton onto the show. Thank you, Joel. It's great to be with you. Well, Jeff, let's just jump right into it. I'd love for you just to tell me a little bit about who you are, your background, and what led you to feel like you were called to be a pastor. Awesome. Well, um, I come from a huge ministry family. My parents had nine children, and eight of us, nine kids, went into full-time vocational ministry. Um, My dad was a pastor. Ended up being a Bible college president. Uh, he was a great evangelist speaker. He spoke. He has spoken in 38 countries of the world and preached over 200 summer camp meetings. So I got a lot of preaching under my belt early on. <laughs> and uh, but he was a great man. He is a great man. He's he's uh, almost 80 now. But uh, I don't know. His passion for the ministry was contagious. Uh, I, I don't know that most pastors could say this, but I never heard my dad one time complain about the fact that he had to go preach or that he had to prepare a sermon. He loved it. He just loved it. And uh, he was a great preacher too. So that inspired me. He was a very inspirational leader. So I uh, grew up in that setting, but um, didn't think that I would necessarily go into ministry. And like a lot of kids, uh, you know, who grew up in the pastoral setting, kind of kind of had some rebellion in my heart. I didn't go out and go crazy, but I just didn't think I wanted to be a poor preacher. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was quite a quite a process uh, the, of God really getting a hold of my heart. And it was it was not until I was 22 years old on February 11, 1990, that uh, I came to a place of absolute surrender to the will of God. Uh, God graciously called me uh, to this deeper walk with Him, uh, asked me if I would surrender all of my pride, and um, and would would just take my hands off the controls of my life. And through the, the gracious leadership of the Holy Spirit, I, I, I like to say to people, um, you know, I'm more on the Wesleyan Methodist side of things. Uh, theologically, I have been, um, even though I work with a lot of my Calvinist friends. Um, but let me tell you something. God has a lot more to do with our journey than sometimes us Wesleyan Arminians give him credit for. <laughs> my Calvinist brothers are a little bit closer to it on some issues there because God brought me to this place of surrender. He gave me the grace and the faith to believe, you know, and change my life. And uh, it was, it was, uh, that was when I was in a, a, a Christian college down in Florida. Um, and then uh, a few months after that, I was in a homiletics class. Uh, I, di- I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was taking pastoral ministries track, but I didn't, up until this point, I didn't think I was going to be a pastor. And uh, in a homiletics class, God revealed to me, uh, the, the uh, teacher said, there's three ways to receive a call from God for the ministry. He said, one is what he called the lightning bolt method. He said, you know, you're driving down the road. God speaks so boldly into your souls. Preach the word, you know. And he said, that's the one you hear about from the pulpit the most. You know, guys tell these dramatic experiences they had. He said, so there's a lightning bolt method. Then there's the second one is a growing conviction over your lifetime that maybe this is what you ought to do. And when he started talking about a growing conviction, he said, maybe even as a child, you used to dream about maybe being a pastor. 
or used to dream about some aspect of the ministry. And there was kind of a longing. And, and I remembered, I went back in my mind when he started saying that to a day at 15 years old, when I was standing on a porch at this college where my dad ended up being the president with my 15 year old girlfriend who ended up being my wife. I said to her, I looked at this little dinky church across the street from our college. And I said, if I'm ever a pastor, I'm not going to pastor a church of 30 people like that. I'm going to pastor a church of 500 people. It was just a stupid punk kid statement, you know. And later on, the Lord said, no, I was speaking into your soul. And I ended up pastoring churches larger than 500 people. It was kind of ironic. So, uh, but in that in that pastoral ministries class, the, the third one was, so, so the lightning bolt, the growing conviction, and the third was circumstances. You're in a church. Somehow the pastor leaves. They ask you, do you speak for a Sunday? And all of a sudden God anoints you and you wake up one day and you're the pastor. And so I knew it was so interesting on that day, that class, God said to me, I've given you a growing conviction across your lifetime and you're going, you're going to be a pastor. And so that's kind of what led me to getting into the ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that that's kind of how I, I got started, you might say. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, especially sharing kind of the three ways, you know, God might speak to someone who's going to be a pastor. Uh, the first lightning bolt is very reminiscent of somebody like Martin Luther. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, so just as an encouragement to all those listening or even those who are already pastors, just thinking, you know, reflecting on how, how God called me into the ministries can uh, certainly be um, encouraging uh, and to do that. So, uh, you know, from there, give me a little uh, journey, a story of kind of some of your pastoral experiences and, and where that's led you. So um, after I graduated from college, uh, actually about seven months before I graduated from college, I was going to school down in South Florida, as I said. Um, this little church down in Hollywood, Florida called the school. They really had no direct connection, uh, but they called the school and said, our pastor is sick and we need someone to come and just fill in for him for a few Sundays while he's sick. And so I got the assignment and I went down it was the Sunday before Christmas, 1992. I preached one, one sermon, and I'd only preached probably 10, 15 times in my life at that point, you know. But we in our homiletics class, they made us manuscript every sermon, you know, early on. So I had some manuscripts that I typed out, and, and I worked hard on it. And, you know, it was kind of unique. I mean, here I'm this young kid. It was a little inner city church that only had one pastor for 37 straight years. He was the founder. And I preached, and I knew that something kind of divine had happened. It was kind of like they were like energized. Uh, and the pastor died five days later on Christmas Day. I mean, it was just like I preached once. I went and had, he wasn't at church that day, but they took me to his house, and I had lunch with him. He was a very sick man. I got to have lunch with that guy, and five days later, he passed away. And when I went back the next Sunday, they, I didn't even know the guy had died. I had no connection to this church. I walked in, there were some elderly saints sitting there, and I said, well, how was your Christmas? And they said, not good. Our pastor died on Christmas. And I went, I panicked. I hear all this young kid. I've not hardly preached much. I didn't have any sermon to comfort this little church of 20 or 30 people, you know. So I go out to the bathroom, which was literally outside restrooms in South Florida with no air conditioning. They weren't outhouses. They had plumbing, but they were outside. And I went out and said, oh, God, what am I doing here? And I went back in and preached, and I'll never forget, the pastor's wife was there that day, and she walked straight up to me, and she said, would you consider coming back until you graduate in June? This was in December, and this was like almost 100 miles from my school. I was working full-time. 
for the school or in the afternoons, I was working for the school. I had a, a wife and I had a brand new baby to be born in two weeks. And I was going to school full time and they want me now to pat, preach every Sunday. And so out of nowhere, I just kind of said, I didn't know what to say. I said, well, I, I guess, you know, I was like, what do I say? So I, I literally um, started going back down there every Sunday. And in the course of that, they said, they started saying, would you become our pastor? And they here, here was the offer they made me. They said, we've never paid a pastor in the history of the church because he was full-time public school principal, but that was his part-time gig, you know? And they said, we don't have any place for you to live, but we would look hard to try to find somewhere for you to live. <laughs> that was my job offer. And God spoke deeply into my soul and said, you will go here. You will go to Hollywood, Florida. And, um, you know, it was really a part of this journey of radical faith. I wrote a book called The Life of Radical Faith. And, and it was it was the beginning of this journey. On February 11, 1990, I made a covenant with God that I'd do anything he asked me to do the rest of my life. And uh, if he would help me. And here was, I, I said, Lord, they don't even have a salary. They don't have a house. And the Lord said, does the deal still stand? What you told me on February 11, 1990, will you, will you still obey, follow that? And I said, I will, Lord. He said, go, I'll take care of the rest. So I went there and I'll make a long story short, seven and a half years. Um, God did a miracle. I mean, we had so many drug addicts and alcoholics coming off the streets of South Florida to get saved, uh, ended up with 150 children and teenagers within a few years. And that's really where the passion for discipleship of children came into my existence that now is a full-blown ministry was uh, all those kids except for one were in public schools. And so we started a Christian club. We were responsible for a Christian club in every public school in middle school and senior high school in Bragg County, Florida, which was 32 different schools that we ended up running a Christian club in. Mm -hmm. I went into the schools and I worked with the kids and I saw the jungle and the kids looked at me and said, do you understand pastor that everything you teach us at church, they teach us the opposite at school. Do you get that? Do you know what's going on over here? And I said, I'm starting to get it, you know? And, uh, Anyhow, so I was there seven and a half wonderful years. God did a miracle in the place and just blew the doors off. Then I was led to Roanoke, Virginia in 2000, divinely. Uh, had, had no plans to leave Hollywood, Florida, but God transplanted me to Virginia um, to a church that uh, was much more established. They just built a whole new complex when I moved here. It was paid for almost 100% debt-free. It was gorgeous. And uh, God began to do something really big there. Um and we actually had to move within three years. We outgrew the place, moved across town to an old church and went through the greatest battle of my entire, I was a pastor for 18 and a half years. And, and the greatest battle of my pastor had happened in that move because these people just poured their life savings into building this brand new church. And then we outgrow it. And then we have to buy this old church that was way bigger, but you know, it wasn't as pretty. It wasn't new. It wasn't anything. And it really created a, a, a mini war in the church. And God led me graciously through that, not to get in the flesh. Those people got in the flesh. They lied. They did some terrible things. And uh, the Lord said, leave it in my hands. If I want you to move, I'll, I'll, I'll get you the votes. If I don't want you to move, then you accept that I didn't want you to move. Mm. And we got the votes by two-thirds majority by one vote, one vote without manipulation. And we moved. The church really grew like crazy after that. In the course of that, I launched a Christian school in 2002. And uh, watched it grow to hundreds of kids in the first seven years. And that, that's where I began to say, wait a minute, I've got these kids for 40 hours a week now. I can truly disciple them. I can teach them what they need to know. I can teach them God's truth. And we graduated tons and tons of kids who are today uh, honoring Christ in business, government, law, medicine, ministry, you name it. And that's when I began to get this vision 
uh, God actually gave me a vision for Renew a Nation the day after Thanksgiving 2007 um, and just spoke boldly into my soul and said, you're going to be involved in giving, taking a biblical worldview to the masses, mm -hmm. <laughs> not just the hundreds of kids you have in your school. And uh, so we launched in 2008. I didn't go full time with it till the fall of 11 and uh, starved to death for three years, literally. And then uh, in about 14 or 15, God began to bless Renew a Nation. And today, I'll just say this. Our vision is to transform culture by giving millions of children a biblical worldview. Our mission is to inspire and equip the family, church, and school to give the children in their care a biblical worldview. And we're working all over America. Uh, there's been a tremendous, great parental awakening. Millions of new children have entered Christian schools and Christian homeschools in the last three years. And it's it's wild. I mean, it's just, it's a most unbelievable experience I've ever seen. Uh, we have about 50 people working for us now at Renew Nation all over America. Um, and uh, God's just up to some really big stuff. Well, that amazing journey and seeing how, you know, God led you from one place, you know, to the other and how he's, you know, grown and developed, even planting kind of those those foreshadowing seeds of, you know, what, uh, you know, what he was uh, having to, to come for you. So I'd love for us to, to take a little bit of, bit of time and kind of focus on this worldview aspect and try to meld it in a little bit talking, you know, because we're talking about and to, to pastors here as well. But could you just take a couple minutes and describe just the basics for Renew a Nation, obviously, but also what is a biblical worldview and what's the need for a biblical worldview in our society? Yeah. So I like to sum it up. I like to sum it up using these kinds of uh, this kind of language. I see worldview. Uh, first of all, every human being has a worldview of some kind. It's not a question of will I have a worldview. It's just which one will you have. And and really, every worldview in the universe is trying to answer the major questions of life. Every worldview is a story about life, a narrative, a meta narrative about life. So. Uh, all the big questions, and you just take some of the questions we find in Genesis chapter one, two, three, four, whatever. Uh, uh, who has ultimate authority in this universe? All right. In the beginning, God. If you don't know who's in charge, you got chaos. And we have chaos in this country today because our young people don't know who's in charge. Secondly, where did we come from? Okay. How did we get here? These are big, huge questions that every human is asking and every world is attempting to answer. So you continue. Um, you know, what is wrong with this world? Why are bad? Why are people so bad? <laughs> you know, I got on a plane and sat down next to this guy. And he said to me, uh, where, where'd you come from? Where, where you been? And I said, somewhere. I don't remember where I was at. And he said, well, what were you doing there? <laughs> and I was like, I gave a speech last night. And he said, on what? I said, on biblical worldview. And he said, oh, he said, I was raised Southern Baptist. I gave up on that decades ago. I'm an atheist. And then he just popped the question. Everybody loves to pop. He said, so you know why I'm an atheist? He said, because if God's so good, why is there so much evil? Okay, which is a legitimate question. And there's tons of, everybody asks that question. Um, and so I said, all right, so you're an atheist. Let's just don't, let's work off your terms. Let's forget that there's a God. Let's assume there is no God. Now, sir, you tell me, why is there so much evil? Because what, what dawned on me a number of years ago was that everybody, has to answer all these questions, not just Christians. And actually, the reason I believe so much in a biblical worldview is because the biblical worldview makes sense in the real world. All right. So I know why there's evil. I know about man coming to this world, rebelling against the God of heaven, sin entering our nature. So every human being is born with sin. We're bent. All the evidence says we're bent to do wrong and left 
to ourselves outside of the power of Christ and the blood of Christ and outside of moral formation and training. Humans turn into little animals. Okay. So th these are, you know, worldviews trying to answer all these questions. I think the Christian worldview answers them the best. Questions like, so if, if a big, huge question is what is wrong with this world, the next question is how do we fix it? Everybody's trying. So take your radical environmentalist, your naturalist. Okay. They, they I, you know, I was in California and I went to a restaurant and they didn't actually have a paper straw. And I was thrilled. I was thanking God for a plastic straw. I want to save the planet. Don't misunderstand me. I believe we're stewards. We're vice regents of the mm -hmm. world. It's going to destroy the earth. That's stupidity. But at the same time, I don't worship that. And so I said to this waitress, I said, thank God you have plastic straws here. And she, she looked at me and said, she got like this totally offended look. And she said, well, I can't wait until we get paper straws to save the planet or something like that. I was like, but you see, she had a salvation message. If we don't save the planet, we're all going to die, etc. So every worldview has the answer to the question, what is wrong? How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Oh, that's Christ is the redeemer. He redeems us so we can become redeemers of all the brokenness. This leads us to purpose. What is our purpose for being here? Okay, so all of these major worldview questions. Well, you look at Genesis 2, it jumps into other things. What is a family? Why do we believe in two genders only? Okay, because God created us male and female. And if you look in the real world, that works out really beautifully. But when you mess with God's good design in any area, bad, bad things happen. So I like to say worldview, you know, we call it creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Those are the four pillars of a biblical worldview. And all, they're really the four pillars of all worldviews. Creation, where do we come from? Fall, what is wrong with us? Redemption, how do we fix it? And restoration, what is our purpose for being in this universe? Mm -hmm. And so anytime, so, so that, you know, anytime you get the answer to those major questions wrong, you are going to end up with a twisted, contorted, messed up world. And that's why today the whole gender thing has lost its mind and we are destroying children's lives, mm -hmm. destroying them because we're getting the wrong answers, that that worldview is built on a completely false foundation. So, I mean, that's kind of a big answer, but that's how I see yeah. it. It's a story. It's a meta-narrative. Hmm. So I, I want to take a, some time in a minute to focus on children and, and you know, discipling kids, you know, uh, Christian schools, but also in public schools and in church setting. But before we touch on that, I, I briefly want to ask, because obviously there's a lot of contention about these discussions in the church at large. So what do you have, whether through personal experience or just, you know, thoughts or ideas, you know, what's the best way to engage with other people who claim to be Christians who don't demonstrate a biblical worldview? You know, they say they believe in, in Jesus, the son of God who saves, you know, saves us, but um, everything else demonstrates a different worldview. What, what do you find are the best ways to interact in, in those instances? I, I like to ask them questions I know they can't answer. You know what I'm saying? I just I just ask people questions. You want a great book on this? It's called Tactics, T-A-C-T-I-C-S. And I forget who that's. It, uh, Gregory Kogel. There you go, Gregory Kogel. That's a tremendous book. And I think what happens is when you when you help others in a loving way, I don't mean to trap people, but when you help others ask themselves questions and try to answer their own questions, to me, it's a much better way to debate than just to say, here's my argument, I'm gonna crush you. Because honestly, the biblical worldview arguments do crush falsehood, they're powerful. 
but I like to say, okay, so, you know, just take, take an example there, there, you know, it's getting less right now, but there was a huge movement of evangelicals who said, no, no, we don't believe in Christian education or Christian homeschooling. All of our children should be educated in the public schools to be evangelists. Okay. Well, you know what? I'd love for every one of our kids to be great evangelists in the public schools. That would be awesome. But the problem with that is, what parent truly believes their child at 8, 10, 12, 13, even 14, 15 is equipped emotionally, intellectually, spiritually to be an evangelist in a world that's hostile to everything that a Christian believes? And so I just like, you know, you really believe your child's that equipped? Would you send your child to Africa to be a major, you know, a missionary over there? No, you wouldn't because they're not ready for it. And so I think the best way is, first of all, speak the truth in love. Don't, don't be harsh. Don't be crazy. Realize people are on a journey. They have to get there. You can't get them all there in one conversation. But I will say this. Uh, you heard me give a speech called Six Reasons Why We Must Give Our Children and Grandchildren a Biblical Worldview. And that's not even all about education. I give that one and, and hardly ever mention education. But the bottom line is this, is that people need to read. They need to listen. They need to hear stuff like that because I've had many people just turn around on the dime after hearing one speech. They never thought about the worldview battle that's raging for their hearts and minds of their children. Plus, you know, you saw I gave a lot of statistics the evidence shows that what we did in the evangelical church over the last 50 years didn't work. We lost millions and millions of children to the lives of this world. And so I think I think we just have to be kind and gracious, loving, but we also have to speak the truth in love and show people the, the results of not training children well and not living according to a biblical worldview. Again, um, it doesn't work out. It doesn't work out in the real world. So we have to expose that to people and show people that. So going along those lines, what would you see as uh, the best, you know, methods or just kind of big, big picture right, things for, for pastors that they can look at? Because in a lot of cases, they're not going to have the kids for 40 hours a week like they would if, if they were running their own Christian school. That's not a possibility for a lot of places. So, you know, what's the best way to inculcate this Christian worldview, even in the limited time, of course, even as you mentioned, you know, the evangelical church has kind of run off of the, we tell a Bible story, do a craft and learn a song. And, you know, that that hasn't worked. And so we want to go back to something foundational. I don't know if that means catechisms or, or what, but but what would you see as, as things uh, that the church now can utilize to, to develop that worldview? Um, of course, it has to start in the home as well with, with right. parents, but but would you just touch on that for for a minute? So Dr. Josh Mobile, who leads our church and family division, he had a thousand children in his church every single week at his last church where he was a pastor of families and children. And what he did was he went in and he basically shifted the whole paradigm. He he went from what we call attractional entertainment, where how much fun can we have with kids so they'll want to keep coming back and get their parents come. And here's kind of how the evangelical church looks at it. If we can get their parents saved, then they'll they'll train the children in the home and we've done our job. Because most pastors, if they're honest, they go, I've only got them one or two hours a week. I mean, I'm not going to make that big of a difference. However, what Josh did was he changed the paradigm from paradigm from attractional entertainment to one of equipping parents and grandparents, churches, equipping the parents and grandparents in their church, in, in, in their congregation to train the children at home and the grandchildren. This is huge. A church only has them an hour a week on average. The average evangelical kid in America only goes to church like two times a week. 
Okay, on average, in the course of or two times a month, I should say, in, in a church. That's the latest numbers Josh has given me. And so if you get a kid for two to four hours a month, you know, you can do good work, but you're not competing with social media, pop culture, that they're watching movies, television, listening to music 15, 20,000 hours from kindergarten to 12th grade, and they're going to school for 16,000 hours from kindergarten to 12th grade. And they're going to church, but they go once a week about 750 hours from kindergarten to 12th grade. So the church is not actually having much of an impact. So if the church does not equip parents and grandparents to really intentionally train their children at home, we have no shot at these kids. The world's going to get them. Um, the other thing I do love is I love it for churches to be super intentional about camps, missions trips, mission trips, um, any kind of off-site Thing where they can take a kid away for a week at a time and, and baptize them in truth and in energy and action and, you know, all that good stuff. That's powerful stuff. Many church kids, most church kids probably would say, I got saved at a church camp. Okay. So I think what the, the key is, and obviously at Renew Nation uh, in our church and family division, we can help churches with this. The key is to develop a scope and sequence for your students all the way from the time they're born in your church until they're going to leave just say 18, which you're going to have some stay, but I mean, a lot of them go off to college and do other things, but you need to be intentional. You need to sit down and map out what do we want them to know when they leave here and what is our path to get them that knowledge? And then you have to build in the programming around that. You start with the end goal and you backward, go backwards on the programming. Uh, that's, you know, we wrote the book, 50 things every child needs to know before leaving home. Phenomenal resource that parents and grandparents can use mostly, but churches could take that book and say to the parents in their church, hey, how about we we focus on six or eight of these major topics over the course of several years to help train your children in these areas? So um, I just think the days of trying to have fun, of um, you know having the coolest music and all this kind of stuff, and, and you have music, have everything cool, but for God's sake, put a plan in place and train these kids so that when they leave your church, they actually know something. Definitely words for all of us to, you know, consider I'm just even running through my head, like, you know, making the checklist and, you know, where can we, uh, you know, look at that ourselves and uh, see, because, you know, it's, it's it, that worldview is, is essential. If you don't go into college with that, you know, that's the one big drop off point. It's, oh, yeah. It's you're, you know, it's again, you're going to get killed. If you don't have a super strong foundation, you go to most colleges day, you're going to you're gonna get killed. The one thing I would say to any family ministry pastors or even senior pastors of smaller churches, um, we just launched in February this year, our brand new family ministry academy. And it's a nine month online uh, program uh, for anybody working with children or youth or families in the church. And uh, Dr. Mulvihill leads it. I was a guest one session. We just had Rob Renow, a guest recently. Um, there's multiple books they read in those nine months. There's coaching. There's, you know, it's a fantastic program. You want to revolutionize your family ministry, uh, get in touch with us and, and I'll put you, you know, we'll put you in touch with Dr. Mulvihill. Uh, we're going to start a new cohort. It's about a cohort. I think we've got 16 pastors in this cohort. It's somewhere between 15 and 20 pastors or children's ministry workers or whatever they are are going to be in each one. We start a new one in the fall. That that would be revolutionary. Hmm. Well, definitely a definitely resource. And I will be putting uh, the link to, to Renew a Nation and to all that in the show notes. You can go ahead and access that. Please check them out. Uh, recently, uh, recently, I was able to hear Jeff uh, speak at an event for my the 
private Christian school my wife teaches at and so thankful for that. And so from you're sitting in an interesting seat, you know, outside of the pastorship at this point, really focusing on worldview. And so that kind of gives you, you can kind of look at kind of those meta issues in a sense. So what do you see as, as upcoming big things that pastors are really going to have to contend with uh, in the, in the coming years? First of all, they're going to have to look deep within and say, do I have the courage to stay true to God's word? Because I'm telling you, the evangelical church at large is abandoning God's word at a pace I have never seen in my, I'm 55 years old. They're abandoning, and it's mostly built around sexuality. Um, that is where the battle is. And what has happened is we do love every human being as pastors and as churches. We love, I love every homosexual. I ministered to them. I cared for them deeply. I care for them deeply today. Those who struggle with gender dysphoria, whatever it is, I, I, I love them all. I have no negative words, but I love God's word. And I believe his, his way is true and it's good. And it's the only healthy way. And so I think I'm seeing pastors just capitulate left and right on this issue of sexuality. And, you know, the bottom line is we've watched history. We've seen entire denominations collapse completely once they abandon the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. I think that is the great battle. And I do believe with all of my heart that true biblical Christianity outside of a revival, a great awakening, which we have had this great parental awakening, which encourages me. But outside of a great awakening, I believe true biblical Christianity is getting ready to shrink in the sense that there's going to be a great divide. My brother is very, my brother and I are super close. He's my pastor. He's got a booming, phenomenal church. And he and I have been looking each other in the face lately and saying, there's a great divide coming. There's a great divide coming. It used to be over much smaller issues. Now we're talking big stuff. Do we believe in the authority of Scripture? Do we believe what God says about sexuality? Do we believe, you know, what God says about these big, big things? And uh, so I think I think the number one thing is, Pastor, which side are you going to be on? Are you going to go with God's word? And maybe, maybe, you know, get yourself in trouble down the road. I mean, there's Canadian pastors that have been arrested, okay? Mm -hmm. Are you going to be willing to pay any price to stay true to God's word? Or are you going to go with the flow? And here's the point. You might build a bigger church in the short run going with the flow, but you will not populate heaven more. You'll just have a bunch of people who are shallow. And that is the big problem with the mega church. I mean, I, I speak in mega churches. I'm not against mega churches, but what happens is I've been saying lately, what we fail to speak publicly will soon become unspeakable. Mm. And so my brother talked about homosexuality um, in the last year or so, you know, it wasn't bashing, wasn't, you know, he just spoke, wasn't even a whole sermon. He just spoke some words. Four women stood up in the service and marched out. And they wrote on their guest cards, gay pride, gay pride, gay pride, gay pride, and stuffed them in the box. Well, do you think that made my brother start shaking? No, he didn't. He hated it. He didn't want to offend them. But I said to him, Troy, if you hadn't said anything for this year, and not next year publicly and overtly about it. Four years from now, we'd had 20 couples because we have phenomenal music and it's just a phenomenal place to be. Mm -hmm. I said, we'd had 20 couples like that. And then what happens in these mega churches, they end up with 500, 1,000 people who agree with sin on some issue. And if they said it publicly, they would lose huge numbers. And then all of a sudden they have to make a decision. Am I going to worry about my attendance and my money? 
I'm going to go stand for truth. If I stand for truth, I'm going to lose a big part of my congregation. And I've seen evangelical pastors crumble under the weight of that. So we have to speak the truth in love. And I would just say that to me is the great thing. Which side are our pastors going to be on? Are they afraid? Do they see the thing is we can't desire that to please man more than God. We have to please God. And our goal, our mission is not to build big churches and have huge numbers and get denominational awards. Our mission is to lead people into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and disciple them deeply to be like Jesus and unleash them back into the world. And I'd rather have 50 people like that than 5,000 who do not hardly know Christ and have no commitment to him. Amen. Well, there's a Charles Spurgeon quote I love. He talks about living in the word, but reading many good books. And I know you'd already mentioned one book earlier, but but what have been some of those good books that you've enjoyed that have just spoken to you that that you've just really appreciated? So I would say if I had one book to recommend to any pastor um, that will rattle your worldview uh, thinking, it's called How Now Shall We Live by Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy. Uh, I read that book in about 1999, 2000, something like that. Um, and that book revolutionized my thinking about children about worldview, about what's going on in the world. And it's thick. It's 400 and some pages, and uh, you would have to wade through it. I dare any pastor who's listening to wade through it, because to me, it gives you the big picture of what's actually happening. Uh, I, I There's so many books I love, but the, the anything by right now, if you're a pastor and you're dealing with a sexuality issue, I would highly recommend Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body. Um, that is the best book on human sexuality I've personally ever read. Um, Nancy Piercy, anything Nancy Piercy writes, she's written Finding Truth, Total Truth. She was an atheist uh, who sat under Francis Schaeffer, and uh, she now is at Houston Baptist University uh, in charge of their apologetics or something. But, um, uh, and, and I know some pastors maybe, you know, might be some of the denominations here, you know, that uh, don't have women, uh, you know, pastors or whatever. And I don't actually have that in my world, but the, the, as far as reading worldview stuff, she's phenomenal. Um, and so that's just a few of the books that I would highly recommend. If they want a real simple read on biblical worldview to get them started, our book, Biblical Worldview, What It Is, Why It Matters, and How to Shape the Worldview of the Next Generation is a fantastic primer on that subject. So uh, that would probably be a good place to start if they haven't read a lot in this vein, but eventually get over to Piercy, Colson, and some of those people because, uh, this is where the battle's at. This is what's really going on behind the scenes. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Appreciate the recommendations, and thank you so much for uh, taking the time and joining me today. Hey, it's my privilege, Joel, and keep up the good work. I love pastors. I pray for pastors. Uh, they have a huge, they're, they're in a huge battle, but listen to me. Uh, stand up, guys and gals. Stand up. Be strong in the Lord. We need you like never before. Don't let the devil beat you down. Be encouraged. Uh, fight it out. Oh, I, one quote I want to give you before I go, because I wrote it down. This is really how I've lived my life. And I think it came under greatest lesson learned. Here's this. Organizations come and go. People last forever. So invest your life in people. Don't go so get so connected to a cause or an organization that you sell your soul and you hurt people. No, no. Invest in the people God has put in front of you. I don't care if you're pastor of a church of 20 people or 20,000 people. Look the people closest to you in the face and say, oh, God, how do I lead these people to where you want them to be? Spiritual leadership is leading people onto, onto God's agenda. That's really what spiritual leadership, leading people onto God's agenda. Look at the people in front of you and say, how do I get them on God's agenda? And if you'll do that, 
Don't sell your soul to organizations, denominations. They can be useful, but don't sell your soul to them. Sell your soul to Jesus and the people he's given you, and you will do well. Well, something for all of us to be commended with. Uh, so thank you again uh, so much for that. Uh, I want to thank the sponsor for the show. It's Blue Water Free Methodist Church. We're an intentional community reflecting Jesus to our world. And of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for joining us on another episode of the Pastor's Call podcast. You can find us wherever podcasts are found. Please subscribe so you know when episodes come out. Please leave a review. It helps uh, other people find our show. And we'd love for you to share this with your family and friends. Share it with your pastor. And we'll see you next episode on The Pastor's Call. God bless.